Well, thank you all. Uh, welcome to the, uh, the London School of Economics. I'm uh, Wouter Den Haan, and I'm a professor at LSE, and I'm uh, director of the Center for Macroeconomics. A couple you know, announcements before I introduce the uh, speaker. Um, our speaker will start with uh, you know, some prepared comments, and then for the students in the audience, I'll give a little bit of background on you know, euro, currency areas, and you know, what's different if you have fixed or flexible exchange rates. And then Lionel and I will have a discussion where I ask Lionel some questions, and then after that, you guys get the, uh, the chance to do the same. Um, the slide with the hashtag has disappeared. It is hashtag LSE Eurozone, for those of you who want Twitter. Uh, and if you keep your mobile phone, phone home, please uh, put it on site. Okay, so today we're very happy to have uh, Lionel Barber as our guest speaker. He is uh, editor of the Financial Times and has been there since uh, 2005. He's in the process of reshaping you know, the journal for the digital age, and I think that process is continuing. I think the color is going to probably stay the same, though. Um, he has interviewed many of the world's leaders, including Barack Obama, Angela Merkel, and Silvio Berlusconi. He's been a journalist and an editor at uh, several newspapers on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, but he has also written books, and he has been a visiting scholar at prestigious universities. Uh, throughout his career, he has won several you know, distinguished awards. I read in his biography that he appeared on the list of the 101 most influential Europeans of the Nouvelle Observateur. I think I show up on the list of 1 million most influential Dutch guys. Uh, so, I mean, we're very happy to have such a distinguished speaker here. So, Lionel. Well, thank you very much, uh, Uta, for that kind introduction. Um, I would love to tell you about the interview that I did with Silvio Berlusconi at his villa, <laughs> which began with him singing an Edith Piaf song. <laughs> But that's maybe for the Q&A. Um, but more seriously, uh, I'm really delighted to be here. The distinguished speaker's been here before. And I'm delighted to see the pink newspaper um, prevalent in the audience today. And I want to make it clear that pink has got nothing to do with political orientation. Um, it is a good moment to reflect upon the euro crisis. And I, I have toyed with the idea of beginning my talk with two words. Thank you, Mario. Because Mario Draghi and the European Central Bank board today decided to cut interest rates. Uh, some would say somewhat belatedly. Some would say there's much more to come. Some would say that it's uh, a reflection of concerns, wider concerns about deflation in the Eurozone. But whatever the motive, it's given me a nice news story. It'll be on the front page tomorrow. Uh, one way of looking at the euro and the euro crisis um, is to use the analogy of living through wartime. Uh, I'd love to claim credit for that, but it actually was Mervyn King, the former governor of the Bank of England, who came up with it. 
And if you think about it, we've been living in wartime conditions for the last five years. This is a crisis which has not been resolved. There have been occasional uh, intermittent ceasefires, but certainly no permanent truce, and even more, no final peace settlement. Many of the issues lie unresolved in this euro crisis. And yet, in my view, the existential threat to the euro has receded. We don't talk these days about Grexit. In fact, we talk about Brexit, but that's another story, that Britain leaving the European Union, not Greece leaving the euro. Sovereign bond yields, uh, the big problem, uh, the cause of volatility uh, in the eurozone uh, just 18 months ago, these have come down. So growth is beginning to recover in the peripheral countries like Spain, Ireland and Portugal, but clearly not enough because that's why the ECB moved today. On the other hand, the, the growth is very tepid And even though there have been serious attempts at structural economic reform, labour market reform, pension reform, all the things that are needed to resolve this crisis, and and I'll come to a couple of others, particularly in the banking system, these underlying problems remain. Now, before I look forward, let me just make a couple of points um, about uh, where we got to from here. Why do I think that the existential threat to the Eurozone has receded? Well, first, because finally, after much indecision, the European Central Bank, through Mario Draghi, decided to state unequivocally that the ECB, with its massive purchasing power, would stand behind the Euro. That was a seminal moment around uh, late last summer, And it was absolutely critical to restoring a measure of calm in the bond markets. And there then followed a policy. It's actually not a policy. It's an insurance policy called the outright monetary uh, (coughs) transaction. That, in effect, the ECB would intervene in the bond market at the low end. But they've not actually done that. They've not had to do it. The market is, in other words responded to the ECB declaration and they not had to cash in the insurance policy. But the second moment, and this is slightly more anecdotal, was the alliance, the de facto alliance between Mario Draghi and Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany and the most powerful uh, politician in Europe. And some say that this came after the, uh, a summer walking trip where, and she does, she loves to go walking, by the way, often round and round mountains. It's a bit like a giant metaphor for European integration. Um, but anyway, she came back, and I think she resolved that actually, to prevent collapse, she needed two to stand unequivocally behind the euro and back Mario Draghi. And I think there were two motivating factors. One was she had witnessed herself in 1989 and 1990 a country collapse 
an economy collapse in East Germany. And the other is, it's true anecdotal, but I'm, I'm just looking for a second source, but it's a great story. Uh, actually, there is a second source. But she, she came back, and there was a lot of talk about Greece going. And some of her advisors said, you know, if Greece goes, it's manageable, it's containable. And she turned around and said, that's what you said about Lehman Brothers. So I think that was a, a seminal moment, and essentially you had Merkel Draghi versus the Bundesbank and the Eurosceptics, or the Euro, not Eurosceptics, but European currency sceptics in Germany. Now, having said this, there are, I think, several reasons for concern looking forward. I said that, the, if you like, the crisis had moved from, if you like, acute to chronic. The patient is not cured, still on whatever um, drugs or, or uh, artificial respiration, whatever you want, uh, is certainly after a serious heart attack. Um, what's coming up which will influence things? Well, first of all, I think there are four things to look at, and then I'll close my remarks. The first is to think about the euro crisis in multi-dimensions. The first dimension is triggered by the financial crisis, where you have you know, great fluctuations and volatility in the bond markets, interest rates rising, uh, and increasing borrowing costs, and putting countries under great strain. The second is a fully-fledged uh, recession, where you see countries' welfare budgets coming under great pressure, you see uh, high unemployment, particularly amongst youth, uh, particularly in the peripheral countries, uh, and you see the rise of uh, populist movements in response, and therefore governments, national governments under pressure. And the third phase, or the, not necessarily phase, but dimension of the crisis, which we are going to see in the next year or so is the, what I'd call the judicial aspect with decisions, crisis decisions being taken in Europe which are then subject to uh, legal challenge and obviously the most important one is in the uh, uh, constitutional court in Germany but there are other important cases in Spain and Portugal the second uh, issue to look at closely and to be aware of, which will cause potential stress in the markets, is the, uh, the, the stress tests for banks. Now, without going into great detail, because I don't want to preempt the discussion, one of the problems has been the connection between uh, weak banks owning uh, sovereign bonds and the connection thereof with sovereign bonds depreciating in value and therefore putting the bank's own uh, uh, balance sheets under stress, which are already under stress because of bad commercial lending on real estate and whatever. And we've had already two stress tests in Europe, and none of them have been credible. Compared to the Americans, who did a brilliant job in 2009, the Europeans have been nowhere, but this time the European Central Bank is taking charge, and it's going to be absolutely critical whether they, these tests with the banks 
are credible because the next step will be then to get private money to come in in a banking union uh, framework to be decided. The final, um, I'm going to curtail this, the final area to look at, which, which I think is very important, is not to be totally Eurocentric here and just looking at the institutions and the architecture, is the external factors and the biggest external factor and the biggest risk, in my view, is the exit from unconventional monetary policy, particularly in the United, well, notably in the United States, uh, the so-called tapering of um, buying of, of bonds by the Federal Reserve. And you already saw the kind of market turmoil when the Federal Reserve last summer said that at some point in the near future it would come to a decision or a declaration about what it was going to do. Uh, and then they didn't do what many people thought in September. At some point this is going to come and I think there will be serious, uh, some serious stress in, in the markets. Now today's move by the European Central Bank is one, I think, important step towards recognising that there is a threat, low growth, deflation, and uh, with a, perhaps the result being a lower euro, you may see some, you know, some uh, support for further growth. But in my view, and I'll end it here, I think there are more measures needed by the monetary authorities. So I'm a cautious pessimist. Thank you very much. Okay, so since this evening's discussion is about uh, the future of the euro, I'll spend a couple minutes talking a little bit about what economic theory thinks about the difference, you know, about a world with the euro and uh, without the euro. Okay. Okay, so the underlying sort of, you know, belief that I have is, is that there's always going to be crises. I mean, we want to drive in fast cars, and so we accept that there are traffic fatalities. In the UK, it's roughly 2,000 a year, so that means a couple each day. I think when you talk about economic crisis, financial crisis, you've got to realize the way we organize you know, our economic system, I mean, crisis is going to be part of it, whether you have a euro or if you don't have a euro. Okay, so it's often mentioned that there are three advantages if you don't have the euro, you know, if countries have their own currency. So one is, is that fiscal policy is not constrained by rules from Brussels. Countries have their independent monetary policy, so they can control the amount of inflation. And if they have their own currency, then the exchange rate could adjust. Okay. I think this is a telling slide. So it gives you the sovereign spreads and tells you what, what happened before the euro, which are the green lines, and what's happening now. And you see, actually, not that much has changed. Countries that were problematic you know, without the euro are problematic with the euro. Okay, so now I want to go quickly through those three things that could be different with or without the euro. So, without the euro, we would have flexible exchange rates, and they could adjust and probably, possibly help with the adjustment. Right, so, if you take Greece now, that drachma could you know, depreciate, Market forces would you know, probably do that, and that would improve the ability of uh, Greek companies to uh, compete. However, I mean, we know very little about exchange rates, and what, well, what we do know is they often move in opposite directions as what our theories predict. And I would have you know, 
not be surprised is that you know, during the noughties is that the drachma would appreciate it, you know, sort of you know, feeding a speculative boom instead of uh, trying to slow it down. Um, and the other aspect I think that's often forgotten is that you know, depreciation makes you cheaper, but it also has downsides. In particular, take a country like Spain, they also import a lot. So then a depreciation right, of a Spanish you know, peso would actually be you know, problematic. In addition to that, is that if currencies depreciate and you're not able to borrow in your own country, then you know, a crisis would only be more severe. <clears throat> okay, monetary policy. It's often said is that now we have this sovereign debt problem. Well, one way to you know, reduce that burden is to inflate the debt away. I mean, Spain and Italy, they cannot do that because monetary policy is controlled by um, the ECB. And actually, quite a few of my colleagues, you know, they, they make that point. Um, and one of the reasons why supposedly the UK is in less trouble is just that they have their own monetary policy. However, again, it's that we don't know that much about you know, monetary policy and how it can affect inflation. In a situation like we are now, right, uh, it's not that clear that countries even could generate inflation if they, if they wanted to. Uh, and it's even harder to imagine that all these central banks of you know, peripheral countries would be able to pull that off if it's even a puzzle for you know, central banks like the Central Bank of Japan. Um, moreover, if you deflate sovereign debt away, you, you know, deflate all debt away. Also, you know, savings of you know, elderly people. Um, and there's a couple other things is that if you try to deflate the debt away, is that the premium probably will go up, and that's not that helpful either. Okay, so finally, the adjustment through fiscal policy. Um, again, is that if you have your own independent fiscal policy, you could stimulate the economy if you wanted to. What some people say is that it would be better for Greece or Italy if they could do that. But again, is that economic theory actually doesn't have much to say about that. Is that we have empirical estimates, but they're all over the place. And, uh, and then the question is, you know, even if right now is that the fiscal multiplier actually would be quite high. So if it would be you know, beneficial for countries like Spain to not be constrained by Brussels, the question is whether politicians would actually implement the right fiscal policy, even if in theory it's possible. Okay. So to sum up, um, it's actually not clear to me. Right? If you look at what economic theory, empirical, or, or other studies have to say, is that adjustment really would have been that much easier in another system. Uh, and I actually you know, suspect is that we would have had the euro crisis no matter what. And even if it's possible that the euro has made this crisis worse, you know, other systems would have had other problems too. Okay, so I think financial crisis is a part of life. And in the beginning, I said something about traffic fatalities. And in preparation of this talk, I looked that up. And it's absolutely stunning how, you know, how it has come down over the years. So we are 2,000 now, which is still you know, horrible, but it's been much worse. So hopefully, we're going to do the same with financial crisis and other crises. We're going to try to figure out to get at least you know, the, the incidence and the severity of crisis uh, Okay. 
Okay, so the way I want to structure my questions, I first want to go back, sort of, you know, in history and look at how the euro was designed, what the motives were, and then we're going to get to, you know, what the, the road ahead of us is going to look like. So my first question is, do you think that you know, the creation of the euro had more to do with politics and, uh, as opposed to economics? I mean, the Nobel Prize was given you know, not to the euro, but you know, to the EU area. So you would think that political dimensions are important. Maybe the unification of Germany played a role. Um. Thank you very much. Can I just establish one um, fact, Professor? Um, am I being graded on this? <laughs> Good. Okay. Uh, look. I didn't answer that. But <laughs> <laughs> the, this was a, a fundamentally a political project. It is true that in the, late uh, in the early 1990s, the Commission produced a report talking about the economic benefits um, of having a single currency in a single market. And notably, came up with a, I think, mythical figure about what you could save on transaction costs. And it is also true that people felt that to keep the single market together, you needed a single currency. But really, the catalyst to the euro and why this happened compared to the failures in the past to push a a common or a single currency was German unification because there was a central bargain between the French and the Germans that in return for German unification France would bind Germany into a single currency and that how, somehow was a way of containing German power. It's interesting to reflect of course that the opposite has happened and actually Germany is even more powerful now and is running the single currency zone no decision is taken without the Chancellor. But that's another story. So I, I really think that this is, a, this is a political project. It's got huge political will behind it. And it's one of the reasons why the euro hasn't fallen apart. Because there's a huge amount of political will behind it to try to keep it together. Do you think those political benefits made it worth it? Well, I think the, it is arguable right now whether countries such as particularly Greece, to a degree Spain, although I think they're taking some very important measures, particularly in the labour markets, which are helping to change and modernise the country. But the political benefits... Uh, I mean, look, let me, let me back off a minute. The fact is that the biggest demonstration that this is a political project is that countries which should not have been in the euro actually got in. I mean, Greece, there was no way that Greece got in. I actually asked um, a senior Amer a European politician how this happened, and he said, well, Giscard d'Estaing, who loved Greece, we couldn't say no. <laughs> Amazing. So there's a lot of criticism um, and they were such troublemakers over Cyprus, but that's another matter. <laughs> so there's a lot of criticism about you know, the, the euro and the design. If you would have to pick like one design flaw, what would it be? What's sort of you know, the biggest mistake you think that they made? Other than perhaps letting 
Greece and uh, Cyprus? Well, there was an obvious imbalance between the economic and monetary pillars of the of the monetary union. It, it's pretty clear to me that without a common banking system, you you really are going to get in trouble if you've got a a single currency and a monetary union. But there are other, I think another big, big mistake was that according to the German model, uh, and I'll have a go at each country so just so everybody doesn't think I'm anti-Greek because I, I love the Greeks, just to be, get that on the record, um, that this was a, a German blueprint. The price, because we talked about what the French demands in the bargain were, but the German demands was, we'll, we'll have this, but one, we want a political union, ill-defined, but second, we want an independent central bank and a monetary union built around German precepts. So everything has to be budget discipline, you know, unless you get under 3% on your budget deficit, you will have penalties and in effect be escorted into the torture chamber. Nobody talked about current account deficits. Never mind budget deficits. So what happens if Greece can borrow at near, under favourable monetary conditions, as happened in the mid part of the noughties, when Greek, Greek banks could borrow at pretty well the same level, or slightly above the level of, 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 uh, of, of German banks, and similarly what the bonds were trading at. I mean, this was a false convergence. If you, and, and therefore, countries didn't adjust. And now they're paying a very, very heavy price. So I'd, I'd say those, those are the two, two big weaknesses. You, you think it would be a... I mean, you, you spoke about current account deficits. So some have argued is we should penalize countries that run big current account surpluses, like Germany. Do you mm. think that would help? Well, I'm, I'd like to see the politician who'd turn up in Berlin and say, we're going to actually penalize you for running a current account surplus. It's dangerous enough to write that if you're a prominent columnist like Martin Wolf of the Financial Times. If you read his column this week where he said, um, I mean, he, he described Germany as being a weight on the world. And if you remember last week, uh, the Americans criticized Germany for running a huge trade surplus. Um, I think... It's sometimes, one has to have some sympathy with the German public and with the German political class that they feel, well, we've done the hard work. Why are we having to bear the brunt or bear the burden um, of adjustment that the rest of the Europeans should be actually? On the other hand, they have benefited enormously from infrastructure projects in Spain and in Greece and others, and they've benefited from the single market in being able to export to these countries with a growing, well, more wealthy population. So I think the German view is somewhat narrow. And I, therefore, I wouldn't necessarily say penalize them, but certainly pressure them. Good luck. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I see in the Netherlands that uh, there's you know, pressure on politicians. Um, I, uh, I was in a restaurant in Amsterdam with uh, a friend, and... Um, he asked whether you could pay in pounds, and then the waiter said, you know, pounds or euros, doesn't matter. It all goes to, you know, Greece anyway. And, that, but that, I mean, that negative attitude, yeah. I mean, it's... Very Dutch. It's, it's, <laughs> but it, it's, it's there, and it's tough for politicians to deal with. Um, 
So do, do you think is that Angela Merkel is going to be able to deal with those negative views? Well, if you, again, if you think of how Angela Merkel was um, portrayed in the Greek press at the height of the crisis, I mean, it was pretty, pretty tough. Um, and she didn't back off. She essentially did make a political decision not to support those who were saying essentially Greece should go. And you can argue it was self, in self-interest because the consequences of a Greek exit were incalculable. But I think, too, there is some... Mike, I've had a, num a number of conversations over the years, both in public and in private, with the Chancellor. And my sense is that you know, she does have a sense... She does have some view of, of the, what might be called the European family... And it's true that there may be a couple of unruly cousins in the, in the South, but they're still, as they say in New Jersey, family. <laughs> okay, so we've uh, talked a lot about you know, the flaws, um, but surely there are also you know, positive aspects of the whole Euro experiment. Yeah, let me think about that. Um, <laughs> well, at one level, although it's, it's, it's tough, I mean, the, the adjustment is happening. Now, I remember, again, in the mid-1990s, because I served in Brussels for six years and I had a wonderful time, and, and one of the reasons why I'm more careful about writing off the euro is when I arrived in 1992, within three weeks the French had given their or delivered their petit oui to Maastricht and uh, a few days before we, we, we had or afterwards Britain and Italy crashed out of the European exchange rate mechanism and everybody was writing off the euro including me who wrote something like the game is up for three words which I wish I'd never or four words I wish I'd never written but you know it looked really grim and then the year, next year later They had to rewrite the rules on the exchange rate mechanism. But five years later, there, there was a political decision to let in a group of countries and forge the euro. So you have to be careful. Um, but the benefits, uh, the, the, the benefits are that this is a... a um, I think it has helped the single market, but it's not been indispensable. I mean, Britain has depreciated by 25%, and it's still in the European Union, as far as I know, and, I mean, it's still there. So I'm not, I just, I'm not, again, let me just say one other positive thing, which I think is a visionary point. One of the architects, I remember again in 1998 saying, why, to, to Nigel Wicks, Sir, Sir Nigel Wicks, who was a prominent British civil servant, who had been very involved in drawing up the rules for the, for the euro. And I said to him, What's, what, what does this mean for Europe? And he said, you know, what this is going to do is create a giant internal market, just like the United States. And it will make, because the rules are so tough, it's going to make these countries more competitive. And this will be a great achievement. Now, I think... There's been some movement to there, 
But because of the crisis, we really are paying a very heavy price. So my, my answer, it's a long answer, but my answer to the question of the benefits is, will the Eurozone be able to resume respectable growth, or are we condemned to terminally tepid growth in Europe with high unemployment because of the strictures of the single currency? That's the test for me. We probably have to uh, wait to find out. Uh, yeah, I, I wish I knew the answer to that question. So one question I'm very interested in is whether there would have been a euro crisis without this financial crisis. Because, I mean, we understand there's clearly, you know, flaws and challenges to having a common currency, <coughs> given you know, the, the problems that are possibly out there. But this started as a subprime mortgage crisis, and then we had Lehman Brothers, and then, you know, and it's true is that there are some property booms in Spain that probably mattered a lot, but um, is it possible that, you know, without the financial crisis that started in the U.S., it would not have been a euro crisis, or would it have happened anyway, maybe later? I don't have any doubt about the fact that there would have been a euro crisis without the financial crisis, because of the imbalances that I talked about, current in current account deficits and lack of competitiveness, which is being exposed in, in several of the countries, members in the, in the Eurozone. It was just partly triggered by the financial crisis. You think it would have been as severe? Well, given the level of imbalances that I, I've alluded to um, and the fact that countries like Greece... I mean, you also had crazy lending. We sometimes we need to remember that each country, which has been a victim of the uh, euro crisis, we haven't talked enough about some of the successes, by the way, but um, they all had different reasons for getting into trouble. I mean, in Ireland, people literally lost their heads. I mean, as if they, the whole country had just consumed a giant vat of Guinness. <laughs> all year so I, w I would like to you know, go to the future but before I do that um, in your uh, comments you thanked uh, Mario Draghi do you think the things would be you know, the, the little progress that you mentioned in your comments that we see now would have been different if Trichet would have stayed uh, in, in charge the ECB? I think Mario Draghi is doing an extraordinarily good job in really difficult circumstances. One has to consider that um, Monsieur Trichet uh, was the first European Central... Sorry, he wasn't. I mean, the, the first was Duisenberg, but after Duisenberg, which was a controversial appointment, they wanted, the Germans wanted a German and the French wanted a Frenchman. So finally, Trichet took over. But um, he... he uh, I think, was quite cautious. He's a bureaucrat. Mario Draghi has worked in the private sector. He's, he's not Florentine, but he seriously understands politics. And he has played this, I think, really very cleverly by winning the trust of Chancellor Merkel, by isolating the Bundesbank on the European Central Bank governing board, by, in effect, winning the trust of key, if you like... You can look at Europe in terms of 
the battle between creditors and debtors. Uh, that we know who the debtors were. We've talked a lot about them. We haven't talked enough about the creditors. Germany, Netherlands, Finland. And Mario Draghi has worked really hard to establish trust and alliances with the creditor countries' representatives on the European Central Bank Board to the point where he literally, in public, could identify the Bundesbank as being the holdout, the backwoodsman. Jean-Claude Trichet would never have done that. And I think also he's been very cre- much more creative than uh, Trichet on monetary policy, and unconventional monetary policy measures. Arguably late on the rate cutting, but actually, you know, he's got to be really careful. When's he going to play his cards? Um, but overall, I give him really high marks. Excellent. Okay, so let's think uh, of the road ahead. So the health of the financial sector clearly has played an uh, important role in the euro crisis. Uh, thinking about Brexit or you know, default on sovereign debt would have been easier if you know, banks would have been in uh, much better financial shape. So there's all kind of plans about financial you know, reform, uh, banking uni- union, a single resolution mechanism. Do you think that the plans that are out there are you know, sufficient to create a healthy banking sector or financial sector at least that's healthy enough to avoid the dependence on that, that we see now as between banks and sovereigns. Yeah. When I said the crisis was not resolved, one of the reasons, or two of the reasons, is because, first of all, you don't have a banking union with, say, common deposit insurance where countries Credited countries are prepared to step in to help the banks of other uh, other countries in the eurozone. And another reason is is that again it's controversial, but some would argue you need to have a mutualisation of the debt. Obviously, the reason that these two two of these ingredients some see as a prerequisite of running a successful monetary union is that it's politically incredibly difficult especially in Germany now if I look at the banks I talked about the previous stress test looking at the balance sheet looking at the quality of assets and liabilities the fact is that the regulators have been captured in the past and that's why now the European Central Bank has been charged to do this exercise and they're actually bringing in private sector people There's a lot at stake. Uh, Now, here I'm going to have a go at the Germans because their banks, a lot of them, are in bad shape. But they're just sitting on the losses and they haven't opened up. The Landesbanken are politically very powerful, huge lobbies, and resistant to change. And a lot of the bad loans on those books and the Landesbank German banks are actually, say, property loans in Greece or Spain. And they just haven't fessed up. So there is a real credibility test now in terms of the stress test that are coming up and the asset, what's called the asset quality review conducted by the European Central Bank. 
And one test for, for the audience will be which European politician is going to stand up first to say this stress test really matters and I give my backing fully to the European Central Bank. So, I mean, the, the euro area crisis has revealed a lot of weaknesses in several countries. Is that has you know, made clear the need for reform, not only in the financial sector, but you know, also in labor markets and possibly in uh, you know, fiscal policy and um, being prudent. So, do you, do you think that this crisis has been so severe that even when we get back, hopefully we will, to you know, sustainable growth? that people will remember how bad you know, it was during the crisis and work hard on getting these reforms implemented. Do you think as soon as growth will start picking up, people will say, you know, we're out of the misery and yeah. go back to you know, the old ways? Well, when you talk about weaknesses being exposed, I'm always reminded of the classic comment by Warren Buffett, who, talking about financial crises, is that you know, when you have one of these crises... It's, it's like you know, somebody swimming in the sea and then suddenly the tide goes out and you find out who's wearing swimming trunks. Well, it's a lot of naked bathers in the Eurozone. Um, I think, you know, I, I really think uh, the test for me is the quality of growth. And I don't think 2% growth is good enough. And I think it's an outrage that young people have no prospect, immediate prospect of work in, country, in, in, in many countries in the Eurozone. And many educated. Um, it's actually a testament to what one might loosely call social stability, that people haven't been out in the streets rioting. There have been protests. Um, we haven't talked enough about France. I mean, France is, is really worrying because they've done next to nothing. I mean, all they've done is raise taxes, on business, and this is a really bad recipe. Uh, so, the, 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 for me, the, the, the question will be: What level of growth after, the, say, in another two or three years, if certain more measures are taken to strengthen the governance of the eurozone, what kind of growth can we expect? It's interesting if you look at if you look at a country like Poland. They've had, until very recently, really impressive growth. And the reason is they've got a flexible labor market and Germany has been sending its, its, dollar, its uh, euros for investment in plants there. It's also Slovakia. If you talk to countries like that, they don't say they're in the German zone because there's a bit of historical freight there. But, but that's what they are. There's a de facto Deutschmark zone in Europe still, even after, Euro, uh, after EMU. Um, let me uh, end my set of questions with a question about uh, the UK. So just imagine that you know, we do get to you know, sustainable growth and the euro is going to survive. And I would think that if that's going to happen, right, these things like labor market reform and financial sector reform must have taken place. So the euro area is going to come out stronger. Now, I mean, it's a hypothetical question. It may, may not happen. But um, suppose that happens. What would that mean for the UK? If the euro really comes out as a more unified, stronger area, more politically connected, strong banking union, would you know, life be tougher for, for the UK? 
first of all, go back to 2000, 2001, when many people said, if Britain doesn't join the euro, investors will flee the UK, manufacturing investors. In fact, I was talking just today, this evening, with Carlos Ghosn of Nissan, uh, Runo Nissan, the, uh, the boss, and he actually admitted, he being one of the people forecasting this, actually they're putting more money into their plant in Sunderland than ever before. And the car industry has not died. In fact, you've had more investment with the likes of Tata, Indian company, took over Jaguar. So I'm a little bit sceptical. I also think that with the housing market, we have a particular type of economy which is uh, sensitive to interest rates. And without control over that, it's politically quite difficult. But the test in the end will be how much pain are we experiencing being outside? And it's true that we're experiencing a lot of pain because of irresponsible banks in this country, um, the lending on commercial real estate, etc. Um, but the pain will be felt in two ways. I think there's, a, there's the kind of positive pain that you might describe, which is if Europe, so-called whatever you, this means, gets its act together, becomes strong. You know, we need to have better than 2.5% growth for me to be getting excited about European growth um, and prospects. But that would be one problem. But the real issue is, are we going to be discriminated against if we are outside the core in terms of access to the single market? Is there a tangible um, weakening of our position as an economic power in Europe? So far not, but if the Eurozone became more integrated and started to take some measures which affected our access to the single market, then I think things may change. Thank you. So I would like to open the floor uh, to give you a chance to ask questions to our speaker. So try to keep it short. Try to keep it to one question so more people have a chance to uh, ask some questions. In, in the back. Hi. Um, I must declare an interest on Finnish. Um, but all this talk of uh, a banking union and, and debt mutualization and sort of Finnish taxpayers potentially having to cover costs in the periphery, uh, not specifically about Finland, but what is the prospect, do you think, of, of one of the so-called creditor countries just leaving? I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, the, the obvious country to leave would obviously would, would be Germany. Uh, no, I'm serious that people <laughs> felt there was, you know, when there was talk about Brexit, actually, you know, this problem of current account surpluses and the um, you know, the principal obstacle to change, reform, and also what was you know, the countries in a natural economic and monetary union. There are several that sit just not compatible with Germany, so i.e. Germany has to go. Um, I don't see that happening, but I do see obstacles to a full, fully-fledged banking union next year, and I don't see any time soon anybody agreeing to debt mutualisation. In essence, 
the German <coughs> government, and by the way, we, again, we haven't talked about the new coalition in Germany, but my view is that Merkel, uh, Chancellor Merkel will be somewhat constrained by the, even though she won a very strong victory in the election, by her new partners, or like certain partners at SPD, um, who will make their own demands uh, at the table. And she's, just, she's just her hands are somewhat tied. So I think you're going to get a perpetuation of, of current policy with some adjust, marginal adjustments. Maybe the ECB, ECB does some small move, measures. But in, effort, in, in essence, the policy is you must adjust, you must do your homework because that's the price of staying in the monetary union. I think there was a question balcony at the front. Uh, thank you for the lecture. Uh, I'm Polish myself. You mentioned Poland. I think we were safe because we were able to depreciate our own currency as well as the British. And thanks to the money from the EU, we, our economy also survived. Uh, but if you're talking about flexible labour force, that's why I'm here, as well as our, you know, around uh, between one or two million people that went, uh, especially off, went to live in, in Western Europe. Uh, my question is about uh, well, so many questions, uh, but there's one that uh, happy to have you here. <laughs> <laughs> Only a few days ago, I think uh, I need some help. 19th year in, the, in a row. 19th year in a row. Um, uh, auditors uh, refuse to sign off yeah. uh, accounts of the European Union. I'm not an accountant, but uh, as, far as, as far as I understand, if I had a limited company in this country, uh, my company would have gone into liquidation a long time ago. Don't you think that there's a bigger political problem that politicians in the EU, the old ones, they, they haven't got, they lack vision, they haven't got any idea what to do next, and just to give you one small example is uh, Mr. Barroso is, uh, is going to be replaced by Mr. Martin Schulz. Uh, why? Are they undemocratically elected? Uh, you, you don't know that because, because that decision hasn't been made. It's been already made and no. Angela Merkel will become again uh, Chancellor. Well, do you want to come to the Financial Times and write that story? Because I think there's still a political decision to be made. I mean, there are people in this audience who know more about the EU budget and, and court of auditors than I do. But what I would say is uh, it is dis pretty disgraceful. It's not dis disgraceful or, or that, that the court of auditors hasn't been able to sign off from this. But the reason is that these funds are given to the national governments, and they're the ones that are the problem. You know, if, you had pro if it was administered properly in Europe, and cut, by the way, should be cut, unless you're going to have some serious money put into research, have a European research budget that matters. But right now, 60% plus goes into, at, at least, into the common agricultural policy. It's skewed. And there's definitely lots and lots of room uh, for abuse. And, it's, and it does sap confidence of, of the public. Question in the back. Hi there. Very quick question. Uh, the euro, how do you think it will fare in the future against digital currency, uh, mainly bitcoins? <laughs> I think I can answer that in full confidence. I have no idea. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, the question is whether bitcoins becomes more important. I, I, I don't know. It's the virtual currency? You cannot pay a subscription to the Financial Times no, yet in Bitcoin. No, no. <laughs> the only advice I give is be careful about speculating in Bitcoins. 
It's going like that. All right. Go on the back. Uh, hi, I'm Neera, A-level student. Um, you spoke about how the ECB is tasked with regulating the, um, reg you know, regulating the banks. So what do you think would be the outcome of ECB balance sheet assessment, especially on Italian banks with their questionable lenders? Yeah, um, I think the, the question is how many institutions, financial institutions, will the ECB declare as a result of their asset quality review that have to seriously raise capital? And I don't know what the answer to that bit, but I'd be very disappointed if some Italian banks were not on that list. I'd also be disappointed if it, uh, German banks were not on the list. Uh, I think Spain has actually done quite a lot. Um, money is actually coming back into Spain now, not least from Brazil, interestingly. Uh, but, you know, what the Americans did really well, and we criticise, we often talk a lot about dysfunctionality and all this, about what, what, what's going on in Washington, but in the crisis... And this, by the way, was the, these were decisions taken by the outgoing Bush administration as much as the incoming Obama administration, was they had to get their handle, their arms around the banks. And I remember, remember the, first, um, the first move was to, to first of all, they, they reworked TARP so that they, the TARP was essentially for financial institutions and then some of it was left over so they put it into the car industry. I mean, great pragmatism, you know, improvisation. But the, they said, I think this is the right number, they said, we have really looked at the banks and we have identified a hole in the balance sheet in total of sum of $168 billion. Oh, we just noticed that $168 billion has been left over in the TARP program. So we're going to use that and put it into the banks. Brilliant. Problem solved. And I remember sitting in Paris in, uh, that, around that time talking to some of the whole group of 15 top industrialists, including a banker who was fulminating about this and said, it's absolutely outrageous. By the way, we don't have a problem in our banking system at all. Certainly not in France. What kind of? What are you drinking? Uh, and then he said, and besides this American thing, it's just a marketing exercise. And I said, precisely. That's the point. You know, it's addressed the problems, confidence. So this is what they have to do. It has to be a marketing exercise as well as a serious asset quality review. From. Um, I'd just like to ask. Oh, sorry. Could I ask what um, you said about the potential effects of decisions that are made in Europe would have on us if we're looking forward? But looking at the decisions that we have made in the Treasury, how have we affected decisions that are made in Europe and policy choices there? And how are the decisions right. we've made seen yeah. in mainland Europe? Uh, when you use the word we, are we talking about the royal we or do you come from the UK <laughs> Treasury? <laughs> Um, I do work at the Treasury. Yeah, I thought so. <laughs> That's why I'm a journalist. <laughs> uh, 
Um, I think that the Treasury did a very good job. Um, um, I think that the Treasury did a very good job on negotiating on the terms of the first iteration of the discussions on banking union uh, and avoided the UK being discriminated against. And that's very important. Um, you, you, it, it's true, too, to remember, although I think the Treasury can take some credit for this, but other uh, civil servants and politicians, when they were actually properly at the table, which they certainly were in the mid-'90s when I was there, uh, even though they were having a torrid time on beef war and not Maastricht, we've only been outvoted once in the Single Market Council, and I think that was about a year ago, is that right? Anyway, it's just not true to say that the Brits have been outvoted or bullied. Now, it's tr- it is true that nobody wants to be outvoted in a council because the humiliation is, is pretty awful. So it often doesn't go to vote, so you can argue you're being pressured to kind of go along with the consensus. But I think so far, so far, a, a with the exception of when we said we will veto the treaty, the fiscal union provision, um, and we, we thought we had three or four countries on the side, and I think we only ended up with the Slovaks um, out of 27. Um, apart from that, I think we've, we haven't seriously been discriminated against. The test is going to be the next phase of integration, which of course is what David Cameron is saying when he when he says that, you know, if there's a, a new a deeper a deeper move a move to deeper integration with treaty change, then we've got to have a referendum. The only thing he forgot to mention is that no European leader right now with high unemployment uh, and a fiscal deficit wants to actually have a treaty change which will require a referendum. Uh, I, I think you were one of the first. And, uh, yeah. Hello, hi. Uh, thank you for the talks, for the insightful talks. Uh, I just want to get your opinion about uh, austerity. Um, because as we've already probably known, uh, the research about austerity, the austerity policy by uh, Rogoff and Reinhardt, it appears that uh, the result was not as significant as uh, it was claimed. And then, uh, just from a layman perspective, it seems that um, I don't know, like the U.S. looks like they are spending through the crisis and then their uh, growth seems to be stronger than, for example, Euro or, or Britain, which seems to be um, advocating budget deficit, budget cutting. Um, do you think that uh, the policy which is being applied in the Euro and in Britain um, is superior or inferior to the, um, I don't know, probably like spending through um, the crisis? Thank well, you. I know that Martin Wolf would argue that essentially Europe's pursuing a, a kind of sadomasochistic um, budget policy and austerity falls into that category. I think you have to be very careful b- before drawing comparisons with the United States has a reserve currency, huge economy, and countries, even Britain. I, I just don't believe we have quite the same manoeuvre. Now, whether, whether we could have, I'll come to one or two of the other countries in a minute, but whether Britain could have avoided 
losing the confidence of financial markets in 2010 um, by saying, well, actually, we're going to have a looser budget policy, uh, fiscal policy, I think is slightly questionable. Um, by, I mean, the calculation, and it was encouraged by Mervyn King at the time, although it was obviously the final political decision was taken by David Cameron and George Osborne, was to say, well, if we double down a bit, or if we say we're going to go a bit further than Alistair Darling's, which I thought was a very reasonable um, fiscal policy and fiscal policy outlook, by sort of doubling down, um, we will in insulate ourselves against a crisis in the bond market, and then we can have a loose monetary policy to com compensate, and that will then generate um, a rebound. And actually, if you think about it, first of all, they have adjusted the fiscal policy. They've had to because they can't balance they can't balance the budget or the structural budget in the current parliament. They've had to delay that. So Plan A has been somewhat adjusted. And the second point is actually you're seeing some signs of recovery now. Now, so I think the gamble, at least the macroeconomic gamble, has paid off just about. Austerity in the other countries, uh, I mean, I, I just think you, if you're going to pursue that, you really need to do other reforms, difficult reforms like pension reform, like labour market reform, in order to generate growth through supply side. Otherwise, you're in trouble. Otherwise, you're, And you can see the results today. Wave it to the microphone. I, I just wondered if you could look, say, five to seven years ahead uh, and answer the question as to whether you think uh, exits from the euro area could be back on the agenda yeah. over that time period. Yeah. And the reason I ask that is looking at it narrowly as an economist first, I, I just don't see how the adjustment that's begun is sustainable. Mm. Uh, in, 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 because if, if you rule out debt mutualization and fiscal, you know, significant fiscal transfers, uh, I don't think that the adjustment that we've seen can be sustained because, the, as the IMF pointed out, the adjustment we've seen has largely occurred through slower income growth in the periphery, and that's mm. just not politically sustainable. Yeah. Uh, and if you don't get the adjustment, then I think the political pressure uh, for a country to leave will rise and that's precisely the scenario in which the OMT doesn't work because yeah. for the OMT to work the ECD needs a country to commit to a program and if you condemn the periphery to another seven years of depression I don't see how uh, one can rule out the possibility yeah. uh, that a government that emerges in one of those countries will say no to the type of conditions the uh, ECB demands of them. Yeah. Well, I'm flattered that you think I can look into a crystal ball five to seven years because most people think journalists only look up to maybe tomorrow, but certainly next week's a stretch. Um, but in my view, it would be very unwise to rule out exits in that time period. 
partly because of the stress that these, some of these countries are under. I'm not sure whether you can... Some, somebody maybe should write a paper on what is an orderly exit, because actually it's hard to figure out. Um, but the other point, there may be some historians in, in the audience. I think the, the historical record for monetary unions, I remember Peter Keenan reading a, the famous Princeton professor who sadly died um, the other year, um, but wrote very well on monetary union. He wrote a piece, and I seem to remember the average life of a monetary union, like the Latin American monetary union or whatever, mon- is be- around between 20 and 30 years. So if you get to, to 2020, which would be seven years from now, then that would be 21 years. So maybe it's time's up. <laughs> maybe. But I still think there's a natural monetary union built around Germany. And the question is whether that's politically, you know, how attractive that is. The, the lady in the back, right next to you. Let me ask this question uh, in another way, not a, a future-related. I seem to be Is the this? last one who doesn't understand how Super Mario did that trick last year with the OMT. Why would, why did the financial markets buy this, this announcement? As was just said, the OMT requires a full-scale program. There will be legal challenges and all that. You cannot roll it out like a lender of last resort. Is it because they took it as a sign that Angela Merkel is behind it and would not oppose it? Now, I think that the the view uh, amongst the big market players was, and I, I remember one of them, you know, one of the big investment banks came, the, the CEO um, came to the Financial Times for lunch, and we were talking about this. And he said it's very simple. As soon as the ECB says it stands behind the euro, then that's the only thing that's going to make people sit up. And of course then, and I'm not saying this is the prime driver, but you, if you know the way financial markets work, everybody's looking for the next bet. And if you could get in there and take the view that this is the moment and the wall of money then moves early. I mean, some of the bank hedge funds, by the way, made a lot of money on Greek bonds last year, and to a degree this year too. Um, I think you know, it does tend to go... Markets, financial markets tend to overshoot and undershoot. On, in the uh, two... As I indicated in the early part of this decade, financial markets seemed to believe that we had a de facto monetary union and that Greece really was almost, had almost converged with Germany. So they overshot then. And I think they overshot thinking there was going to be a breakup. But the other point is, I think it was incredibly well crafted. Mario Draghi did not have to state explicitly that he had the German, the support of the German Chancellor. The German Chancellor said some things. But he said, I'm going to do whatever it takes. That's a big statement for, for a central banker. Um, and the, there was no dissenting view by politicians. And therefore, I think it had a, a fundamental effect on sentiment without resolving all the problems. The, the front row here. Thank you. 
recently, um, there have been voices within the European Commission that have been calling uh, for a stronger political union, for the, for the need of a, of a United States of Europe. Um, do you think that, that such a strategy would, would resolve, could resolve the problems the Europe currently has? And if so, um, how feasible do you, think, do you think such a strategy is? Well, I haven't heard the phrase United States of Europe for quite a while, and I can't imagine which sad bureaucrat in Brussels in the Commission has come out with this. Um, maybe someone's there. I, I, I just think this is an outdated concept. It's rhetorically quite attractive. But, you know, I've tried to explain that there are serious political obstacles to deeper integration. If you want to talk about the United States of Europe, the Commission's weakening power is deeply disturbing, actually, because the Commission needs to be the enforcer and umpire in the single market, needs to have political weight because it, it is the one, the one institution, as opposed to the European Parliament, that is taking a, a kind of general view. Um, but we're just not ready. The great the story of the last 20 years, even with Maastricht and even with the new changes in, um, uh, in, in, uh, in governance, is you haven't got really a European, an easily described United States of Europe. It's united in name only, um, but it hasn't fallen apart and we've continued with enlargement. So if you want to use it in that respect, loose then it works. But the notion of... I suppose why I've, I, I, I bucked it immediately was it conjures up Philadelphia, 1787, or the United States of America, United States of Europe, and, and it just won't work because of our history. But you can have um, a hybrid that's where different countries are moving at different paces, different levels of cooperation, and, and live with that and make it work better. And there are plenty of things I've tried to out, outline tonight that could do that. Person in the far back. Hi, uh, my name is Yanis Sopanos. Uh, quick question: If you were a, a good prime minister in one of the periphery countries, uh, as an example, in uh, one of the countries that has issues with its debt and its debt restructuring, and also uh, there is a big, a very heavy austerity program. Uh, Placed on that, what would you do? Would you stay in Europe, or you would you try to find another well, way I'd, out? I try and I try to stay in, and we haven't talked about Portugal, which has really done everything and more to meet the demands of European partners and the IMF in terms of adjusting its uh, economy and cutting spending. It's really been quite quite courageous. Where do you go if you leave? I mean, that would be the question I'd be asking if I was Prime Minister. You know, you go out on the balcony or you do the TV interview and say, well, we're leaving. <laughs> oh, okay. And you dread the follow-up question, which would be, where are you going then? <laughs> it's a bit uh, facetious, but I, I mean, I, I think you just you stay, you try and find friends, you try to get the best terms, and you try and act with political courage. The girl in the middle, in the back. Hi. First of all, thank you very much for your session today. Um, 
I come at this whole point, of, uh, point from a very skeptical position because I actually come from India. So my, um, I suppose I, I have to declare that I'm a skeptic. Uh, my question to you is, are the financial markets really hopeful for a solution to Europe, or are we all just bracing ourselves for a, hopefully a dignified breakup at a later date? So really, I mean, are we, are we expecting, is there any sense of optimism at all in the markets that this is going to ever work? Yeah. I love this concept of um, a dignified breakup. <laughs> I did my best. It would be the absolutely, be completely lack of dignity. I mean, just because you'd fail. You'd be seen as... Um, now, I, th- I think the financial... I get, I, look, I don't, I don't pretend to have any great insight to markets other than... And I, and I, but I do think rationality plays with this rationality. And I, my feeling, given what I said about the unresolved problems, is while the markets bought into the druggy, outright monetary policy, and while they're looking at the next steps, there, there could well be another reassessment. There could well be more turbulence. The question is whether that turbulence can be managed. I had a conversation with one of the policymakers who's in running this uh, in Europe recently where he raised it, not me. And he pointed to the taper as a, a moment and also the asset quality review. If markets begin to sense that there's a lack of credibility, then they're going to attack. So, but whether that leads to a breakup, I, I feel that we've gone over that particular hump. And the question, therefore, would come back to where are we in the late teens? And is this working? What's in it for us? I've been doing this for a while, but it's amazing. They, they keep on being eager and wanting to ask questions. Oh, I'm amazed. I'm <laughs> In the the back. Uh, Hello. Uh, Thank you for the lecture. I just want to ask, um, how do you think the Eurozone crisis has affected the role of the Eurozone in the global market? Because uh, I don't think you talked a little bit about that. Uh, You mean capital markets or currency markets or what? Uh, I mean the international currency market. Um, so how, um, because a lot of people, uh, a lot of countries hold um, um, euro as a, one of the reserve currencies, but like um, a part, um, probably on par with the dollar in some sense. Yeah, I don't know whether it's. They, I don't think their holdings are on a par with the dollar. That, that it's true that the euro holdings and <coughs> have increased in terms in the forex market. Um, but I remember, I remember going in this. This is maybe one shouldn't go down memory lane, but I do remember going via Thailand with the then Monetary Affairs Commissioner of the, in Brussels called Yves Thibault de Silgi, wonderful name. Um, and he was going there to to go to one of the regional finance ministers' meeting and then go to China, or he was going to meet the Chinese uh, authorities in. Hong Kong, and he he insisted to me in the plane over that China was going to increase its foreign exchange reserves component by something like 20 to 25 percent. And I remember putting this to a Chinese official, who just looked at me as if to say, "You seriously need to go back to where you came from because there's no way." But it was done very politely. 
Now, since then, things have come on, and there's no question that in terms of the you know, eurobond market, if you like, you've got a greater liquidity, much, you know, which has been created since the launch of the euro. But the euro is not, is not a reserve currency like the dollar. It's a serious currency. It'd be interesting to see when the RMB internationalizes, at what level, where do we rate the euro, right, in that sort of new system. Uh, so I think they've come a fair way. Um, um, but I suppose one could say what, use that phrasing, it's a long walk for a short beer. Another, another in the back, yeah, right there. Hi, um, just a quick question. I feel when we talk about the crisis that has occurred, there is uh, a lot of talk of getting back to normal and sustainable growth. And it seems like there's a paradox there. And I wonder if you believe that the Eurozone since its inception has ever experienced sustainable growth. Well, there were um, some very impressive growth figures uh, in the early part of the decade. And that is the first part of the decade of the 21st century. I mean, it, it didn't match what the leaders committed to at Lisbon, which was, I think, within a decade to make the European Union the most competitive country, uh, economic area in the world. I mean, they came a long way back from that. And that was sort of typical dot-com hype. But the actual growth figures in the periphery were, were quite good. Some of it was built on irresponsible lending, as in Spain, but some not. Uh, I, I, I would prefer to look forward and say, given the current policy mix, given the particular weaknesses in the organization of the monetary union, what can we expect? What are the expectations? How can we get to above 2% growth, above 2% over a sustainable period, over the cycle? That's the test. We probably should uh, think of tapering off <coughs> questions. Um, here in front. Um, do you think wait, wait a second to get the microphone. Do you think uh, that a stronger Europe will be forged if there are two monetary unions, one in the north, one in the south? Uh, how attractive would that be? And who would join? There's an interesting question. I suppose you can have a natural monetary union in the north with... You'd have to include France even with its lack of reform. Um, then what would... I mean, this is... Do you know the best way of answering your question is to say, OK, weak monetary union in the south, sounds good. Um, strong monetary union in the north. Who gets left out? One of the funniest stories I remember covering um, was when there was a meeting called by Tony Blair in Downing Street to discuss some crisis. And... It was initially, I found out who was going to attend. And it were the Germans, the French, the Brits, obviously, the European Com Commission, I'm pretty certain, and maybe the President of the Council. And then the, the Dutch found out, and they wanted to come. And then the Spanish found out, and they were really fed up because of proud nation. How can you, Before you know where you are, you had all these people outside Downing Street knocking on the door saying, we want to be at your meeting. So I just don't think there's any chance of a, of a, of a two-tier 
of a two-tier mon- two monetary unions. There may be a two-tier one with the stronger members giving some support to the South. A de facto two-tier monetary union. Okay, right there. <clears throat> Uh, hi, sir. Thank you for your speech. So you've said the euro was not on par with dollar as a like, world-leading currency. So my question is, do, do you think the, U- the USA has contributed to the debt crisis as the rise of euro may threaten the position of US dollar as a... No, uh, sorry. Do I think the, euro, the, the United States has contributed... Has contributed to the debt crisis. The debt crisis? Yeah. Uh, uh, well, because I think the, the, the rights of euro may threaten the position of U.S. dollar oh, okay. as a world-leading currency. Yeah, no, I, I just don't buy the conspiracy theory that somehow the Americans were really worried about the euro as a rival currency and therefore they deliberately decided to trigger a financial crisis <laughs> which they then exported to the rest of the world, <laughs> no, I mean, including I, Japan. Uh, uh, <laughs> no, I, I, you know, I, don't, I just don't think that's correct. But, but maybe I didn't understand your question. Sorry. Okay. Like, I mean, there's still many more questions, but um, let's pick one final question. Is that right, right in the front? Well, then we do two. Okay. No, no, I mean, that's, that's nasty. You know, we just give the microphone in his hand and then not ask. Hi, Lionel. Thanks for your comments. Um, being from Ireland, I would love to confirm the VAT of Guinness thing, but my memory's kind of hazy from around there. So. <laughs> Anyway, um, so one of your points was that in many situations, uh, a political reasoning um, might have interfered with what otherwise could have been a very objective and scientific financial decision. Um, Would you agree that considering some of the regulations coming in, and I'm specifically trying to reference the European financial transaction tax, would you agree that the motivations against measures like that are ill-placed or potentially more political than financial? Yeah. So ask the Financial Times editor whether he's against the financial transaction tax. uh, But can I just say, make just a point about Ireland? Because I went there in 2010 to give a lecture and essentially said, I think things are slowly getting better. I think what the Irish, they they did have one hell of a party. And they do, they throw great parties, particularly in Dublin. But having said that, they've done an amazing job in trying to sort out the public finances and they've worked so hard to get their economy back on track. And they need, they need every support they can get from, from other countries, including the European Central Bank, when it comes to repayment terms, etc. Um, the European financial transaction tax is daft and shouldn't be introduced. I don't think it will be introduced. I think if you think of all the measures that are being um, imposed on the banks now for, admittedly, some terrible conduct uh, during the financial crisis and before, this is one thing we don't need. So since I didn't point very accurately, one more. Yeah. Yeah, well, this is Stefan from Germany. Like, you pointed out that Mario Draghi and, and the ECB was basically the solution. But if you go back in time, a few years, like, there was a race between Draghi and, and Weber from Germany to become head of the, of the ECB. What do you think things would have turned out if it wouldn't have been Draghi but Weber? Would have been, would have been there still a solution? 
or would the eurozone kind of die or everything like end in a catastrophic? Well, um, because I've been asking a lot of questions, can I ask somebody a question back? Sure. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, in one word, tell the audience whether you think it would have been a good idea to have had a German as running the central bank in Europe. Personally, personally not. Not really. I'm, I'm, I'm glad. I'm a fan of Super Mario. <laughs> good answer. <laughs> no, but... I mean, that's not where Europe, where I was being critical about the United States and Europe. The fact is, you need to have a balance. And this was the best possible. I was a very keen supporter of Mario Draghi because he was technically brilliant, politically savvy. And the idea you put a responsible Italian, and by the way, that is not. A, <clears throat> that's, not that's not an oxymoron. But it's been a brilliant move. Um, And I think that you have to ask, why did Axel Weber withdraw? What was the problem? I mean, he's doing a very important job now at Credit Suisse. But, uh, sorry, UBS, exactly, UBS. Uh, I, I just think it wasn't a good move, and, and we got the right historical outcome. And if he, if he had been, I think, if, can you imagine how difficult it would have been to sell these measures? Um, One, in terms of creative monetary policy. Second, he would have just been seen as the stooge of Berlin and the Bundesbank. And maybe he realized that. I've never asked him. Maybe I'm, I will after that question. <laughs> I have a last one. Maybe you can share the experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay, so <laughs> is this being filmed? <laughs> um, in 2000, uh, I went to Madrid to interview Jose Maria Aznar, and he'd just come back from a budget win in a European Council. And he described to me with great glee with this cigar that was, I don't know, it was gigantic. <laughs> and, he, and he pulled it out and he said, you know, I just told these guys... You know, including Chancellor Call. Uh, it wasn't Call actually. It was uh, was it 2000? No, because he'd lost it. It was Schroeder, exactly. So and he just said, you know, I sat there smoking my cigar and I said, he, I told these colleagues, come back when you come up with a reasonable solution. So I thought, what an arrogant man. But anyway, um, it was quite interesting. And then we'd been trying for months to try to get an interview with Silvio Berlusconi before the election. And they kept saying no, no, and they thought the Financial Times was some pinko tabloid. Um, <laughs> she's not true. Um, and, they were, they were, and then The Economist published their famous front cover, which was unfit for, to lead, which he subsequently sued them against. Lost, by the way. But, um, and then we got a call saying, maybe you'd like to come to Italy, to Rome, to <laughs> interview someone. So, so I remember turning up in Rome and you know, doing a lot of homework and, you know, it was four months before the election and it was beautiful weather, warm, late October and we went to his private villa in the centre of Rome and I think it's the only time I've ever been to see in a, in, in, in a corridor seeing purple roses and where every member of the opposite sex is six foot tall and brunette. 
It was just amazing. Um, and then they said, so I don't know why I'm telling you this story, but, but, but I, I remember saying, look, I really want to meet, you know, Mr. Berlusconi, but I don't want an interpreter. And they think, oh, you know, big problem. And I said, no, I mean, he, I, I just don't want to have, I want to speak to him directly, and I think his English is not bad. They said, no, his English is terrible. I won't do the accent. <laughs> And then I said, okay, and I got a great idea. I said, I will conduct the interview in French, because my French was still pretty good from Brussels days. So they said, oh, I don't know, non possible, non possible. And so I said, no, no, I think it's definitely possible. And I don't like that. I don't like this interpreter anyway. And then, then they were all, it was all a kerfuffle, and oh, it's non possible. And then this short individual <laughs> walked in, and even then he'd had serious work. Um, and he beamed at me and I said in French to him I've just seen your great friend Jose Maria Aznar in the Moncler and he sends you his best wishes and he said to me ah in French you speak French and I said yes I do and he said then I'm going to sing for you And he sang this Edith Piaf song, <laughs> crooning away. I'm going, what's going on here? But anyway, we started in French. And then the last thing, as we walked into the room, he, he said to me in a very serious way, we have to watch Spain. Spain is in danger of overtaking Italy. Madrid is a great city. Uh, he wasn't talking about the football team, by the way. He was, he was talking about the economy. And he said, that's why... And at this point, the chest moves out. And he says, I have to run my... I have to lead my country again. And there's just a postscript to this. We started in a room with frescoes and everything else. And the food is absolutely fantastic. The pasta is to die for. And normally I don't drink at lunchtime, but, you know, there's some amazing red wine from somewhere. And so, of course, I had a glass of that, and the French is really beginning to flow. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I said, I thought, at some point, we've got to talk about the fact that he owns more than half of the media in his country. And anyway, he's corrupt, and, but, you know, the wine's so good. <laughs> so anyway... After the second course with the Vitella, and I, um, I then said to him, well, what about your media empire? I mean, you know, and he says, media empire? He's kind of what? And he said, well, maybe I give it to my daughter as a Christmas present. <laughs> I said, no, 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 there's a serious problem. I mean, you are own, you own TV stations, you own radio, you own books, you own newspapers. I mean, you're a media magnet. He says, Never, you never, Jean Martin, fait pas d'intervention dans le, you know, whatever, in the media. And at this point, as in Ruritania, the doors open, and this little guy comes through the door and he says, uh, Il Cavaliere, because he was the Cavalier, he says, I ever give you, uh, this is the morning headlines just for the news for you to look at, like this. It's like the guy that never interferes in the media. It's his, anyway, there we are. So, yeah. I'm sure glad I didn't have to answer all these questions. I mean, it's amazing the, you know, the range of questions that were asked. Looks like the Financial Times is in uh, very capable hands. 
And we were very lucky and grateful uh, that you know, we had such a distinguished and entertaining guest speaker this evening. Thanks, Thank thanks you. a lot. Thank you.